Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good uh, good evening, Narafan. How are you? Good evening, my friend. So we are starting early tonight, folks, because I've got a plane to catch uh, boarding at 9.15 p.m. <clears throat> Vegas time, 10 o'clock takeoff. And so about 7.30, I'm going to take off. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, really quick announcements. We raised about 2700 bucks. Not enough for Maven to tell her sex toy story. Um, mm. so I know, I know, I know. It, it was it was all the buzz. You know what I mean? That um, makes baby Jesus cry. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think baby Jesus will be all right with it. Um, folks, also, if if folks are going to come in here around 620, and obviously they're going to wonder why we started early, if folks in the chat, if you'll let those folks know the reason and also help them find, I think on YouTube, you can go back and start from the beginning and watch it at a faster speed and they can get caught up that way. If folks will help instruct those who are uh, stragglers at the normal time that we started early, and with that, any questions from you before we kind of plug away and start at this? No, we're just making up a little bit for all the times we started a couple minutes late. Yeah, and we've done that a few times too. So uh, let me see if we can put all of this up on the screen. All right. So uh, this was an interesting story. I came across this a uh, uh, about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, and had planned to do an episode on it. And then we've got Thomas uh, Murphy coming back. Uh, in two weeks and whatever loose ends we don't tie up tonight he's going to help us uh, plus there's a really cool thing at the end of this presentation that he really is just kind of the expert uh, on on this story and uh, fascinating uh, individual and fascinating story so with that here we go uh, Ray Lucero Pratt is born October 11th uh, 1878 Pratt was born in Salt Lake City Utah territory he was the fourth child of uh, Helaman Pratt and Emmeline Billingsley Pratt. Uh, when Ray was nine, the Pratts moved to Mexico to help settle Colonia Dublin, a Mormon colony in the northern state of uh, Chihuahua. His father was settling in Mexico to escape being prosecuted by the United States federal government for practicing polygamy. And folks will remember that story. Wilfred Woodruff, Post Manifesto, polygamy is still going on. The LDS Church sends out a bunch of its members to various places, including the United States, uh, Canada, Mexico, and other places to continue practicing the principle. It's why all the FLDS folks feel like um, they really are doing the right thing is because the LDS Church told them to keep doing it. And then the LDS Church changed their mind and essentially excommunicated all those folks. But this was one of the families that was out there. So just to note, that Helaman Pratt has other wives that will come in uh, to this story later on. Um, but the family moved to Mexico to avoid being prosecuted for polygamy. Ray uh, was nine years old when that happened. 
somewhere along the way, he and at least some of his siblings became Mexican citizens. Uh, so there's that. Apostle uh, Orson F. Whitney set Ray Pratt apart as a missionary on the 4th of October, 1906. And on the 1st of November, Pratt arrived by train in Mexico City and reported to the mission home. He served for nearly a year under mission president Hiram S. Harris. That was the only photo I could find of, of Hiram Harris, uh, President Harris of the mission, uh, during which time he presided over the Toluca Conference for seven months. That's Ray Pratt. Um, then on the 25th of August, 1907, Harris announced that Pratt would replace him as the president of the Mexican mission. Pratt was set apart by Harris on the 29th of September, and the Pratts moved to Mexico City shortly uh, thereafter. Around this same time, because this is going to come into play as we talk about the story and what happened, there's a thing called the Cristero Rebellion, often called the Cristero War as well. Uh, it was a peasant uprising from 1926 to 1929. Uh, it pushed Mexico to the brink of political chaos. The Cristeros generally saw the conflict as a religious war against the anti-clericalism of the Mexican government, cleric meaning uh, ministers of various religions. Um, the anti-clericalism originated in northern Mexico where North American-style entrepreneurs, Protestant converts, and ambitious politicians built a movement to transform their traditionally, traditionally Catholic nation into a center of secular economic expansion. The movement's leading proponent, uh, Plutarco Elias Calles, president of Mexico 1924-1928, placed rigid regu regulations on the church, including required registration of priests and the closing of church schools. Uh, the church, and by the way, when they say the church, they're talking about the Catholic church. Um, the Catholic church responded with a strike, the cessation of religious services, which caused a panic among the faithful in, and I don't, I'm not going to pronounce everything in this uh, presentation correctly, but Jalisco and the surrounding states of central Mexico, this panic sparked a peasant rebellion. Government claims that the, re that the rebels were superstitious tools of scheming priests and were largely propaganda. Only about 45 of the 3,600 priests in Mexico supported the rebellion. The Cristeros were indigenous and mestizo peasants whose motives for rebellion were mixed. Most acted to defend their faith against an expand, uh, expansive secular state while others seized the opportunity to demand more extensive land reform. I'll just explain this again because that was a lot of words and I don't think it was worded clearly. Mexico didn't want non-national religious leaders to be giving messages and running the religious institutions in Mexico. So they passed legislation that went unforced for a long time, but eventually was enforced, where um, Mexico did not allow non-nationals to lead congregations or be the authorities of the religious systems within Mexico because they, they worried that um, non-nationals would come in from other places in the world and would deeply influence uh, the Mexican culture within the religious realm and cause the Mexicans to lose some of their identity. And there's obviously political reasons as well. But uh, to note that there was a long period of time wherein nobody outside of Mexico could come in and be any sort of authority figure within any religious system inside Mexico. 
Um, right, I, think... I get it now. And I'm the last person to uh, correct your pronunciations, Bill. All I know is that I'm getting awfully hungry from some for some jalapeno peppers. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, the Cristero Rebellion of 1926 had disrupted the religious atmosphere in Mexico for nine years, and it forced all foreign clergy out of Mexico. The rebellion was instigated as a response to an executive decree by the Mexican president. Uh, we said his name, Plutarco uh, Calles, to strictly enforce. And what that was was Article 130 of the Constitution, a decision known as Calles Law. And it, and it went unenforced for the longest time, but eventually they did. Uh, Calles uh, sought to eliminate power of the Catholic Church in Mexico, its affiliated organizations, and to suppress popular rel religiosity. Sorry, religiosity. And it, it should be noted that all throughout history, there have been times where Christian missionaries, Christian ministers have come along and have taken away piece by piece the identity of the indigenous peoples uh, within religious arenas. And so this was just, uh, I think, at least in part, an effort to stop that. Um, what this means for the Mormons is that their connection to Salt Lake for a time is partially severed. The Mexican saints have no direct liaison to Salt Lake outside of mail, and they must lead themselves inside the country. Ray Pratt, uh, sort of a local, again, born in the U.S., but at nine years old, moves to Mexico. His parents are there for a significant amount of time. He serves his mission there, and he ends up becoming the mission president there. Uh, Ray Pratt, uh, sort of a local, he's serving as the mission president, and he's the highest ranking leader inside Mexico who can have direct contact with the saints. And um, and it's for almost about a decade, nine years, I think. And Ray seems By to be well-respected. Please. I was just going to say that I've talked about this with a number of people. And as background, this is a completely new story to me. I had never heard of this story before, what we're getting to. But... Um, it helped when I explained to people, and I think I'm correct, that at the time, there's no wards, there's no stakes in Mexico. Is that correct? So they're in the mission field, which means the mission president is their leader, their local leader in Mexico. It's, they don't have a state president. It's the mission president. Yeah, it's just districts. So instead of uh, you have a district presidency, and then they are overseen by the mission president. Correct. Uh, so now we'll get to kind of the local leadership of this group. And I just wanted to show this picture just to show where some of these images came from. This picture will come in handy later on. And then I just want to note, too, because this is important as we start off this next part of the story. Ray Pratt was a much-loved mission president within Mexico, but Pratt was assigned in 1924 to help open the church's mission in Argentina. And so just... I just want folks to note the difference. I mean, not everybody's a, an expert at geography. Note the uh, long distance from Mexico to uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, and recognize that Ray Pratt is the mission president of Mexico. But while he's the mission president of Mexico, he's sent down to Argentina to open up that mission. And he has to essentially... Um, lead both areas and notice the distance in between him kind of doing that in Mexico. I also think that's the three days journey for a Nephite there. Yeah. Will you pull that comment off for just a second, Maven? Um, so while he goes down to Argentina, he appoints Isaias Juarez to preside over the central Mexican district. And his counselors are the other two there on the screen, Abel Paez 
and Bernabe Para. And I'm, again, I, I apologize if I'm pronouncing any of these names incorrectly. He assigns them as his counselors. These three men maintain stability and confidence in the small branches in Mexico. If you can imagine this, this big area that's really just getting off the ground within the church. And these men, these are the men who are its stalwart members who are there from the ground level as they're building things. And as the Mexican church uh, within, within Mormonism flourishes, the LDS church flourishes there in Mexico, these are the guys. I mean, these are the ones that everybody respects and looks up to. Um, these three men maintain stability and confidence in the small branches in Mexico. The branches survived their isolation from Salt Lake City, and some even flourished. But much of the church members and leaders' stability depended on Ray Pratt's guidance and direction. So this would be essentially like your stake president uh, presidency, because you have your branches, um, which make up a district, because the church isn't big enough to be wards and stakes, as RFM pointed out. So uh, Isaiah Suarez would be essentially the stake president, but it's a smaller uh, number of people in congregations, so it's a district president. And then these are his counselors. Um, and then Ray Pratt is essentially the general authority who's in Mexico and without anybody else. Um, Pratt was also responsible for creating a new translation of the Book of Mormon into Spanish. He also translated many hymns of the church uh, into Spanish. But unfortunately, things uh, don't go well for him. Disaster struck on April 14th, 1931, following an operation uh, for an intestinal rupture, appendicitis. Uh, Ray Pratt died, and he died in Salt Lake City. So I don't know the story of how he is leading the saints in Argentina, opening up that mission, and then gets appendicitis somehow ends up back in Salt Lake City to have a surgery and uh, passes away. So just to note that Ray dies, but he is he's the backbone of, of the church in Mexico uh, up until his death with the help of that district presidency, uh, essentially kind of his right-hand uh, men. Um, and so what the church does is finally in the spring of 1932, uh, no, let me say it again. Sorry. Anton Ridgway Ivans was appointed to re, uh, replace Ray Pratt. Ivans showed no interest in his new appointment. For nearly a year, he never paid a visit to Mexico, nor did he communicate with the leaders or members there. The Mexican saints get together, and I'm going to call this the first convention. Uh, the Mexican saints get together, the first convention, and request the church to do something about the lack of leadership that they are getting from Salt Lake and that they wished for a native-born leader. The fact that they received no support nor a response to their petition <clears throat> for a native-born mission uh, leader increased the uh, chasm. And just to note, Ant uh, Antoine Ridgeway Ivans certainly w dropped the ball in terms of helping the saints in Mexico, keeping contact, and being the leadership that they needed. But I don't want people to get the idea that he was lazy. He was also in charge of all of the Spanish-speaking areas in the southern United States. And he was also um, instructed by the brethren to translate um, certain materials into uh, Spanish as well. So it's not like he wasn't doing anything. It's just that he prioritized his other responsibilities over the saints in Mexico, and they very much felt like um, 
he was an absent leader who wasn't giving them the leadership that they deserved. And so the saints in Mexico get together and say, you know, you you just, you, you guys have got to send us, you know, call a local leader so that we have some leadership here. And, uh, and anyway, that's how we get to that point. Finally. Yeah. It mentions here in the note that one of the things he translated into Spanish was the temple endowment. Yeah. Look at that endowment into a language other than English in cooperation with Eduardo Balderas. Uh, yep. Yes. So what I want to know is, please, uh, what is Pele ale in Spanish? (laughs) What is Pele ale in a (laughs) Damic? Well, I think we all know that, don't we? Yeah. But I, is that really, is that really what it is? Is that really uh, how I it, think it has the elements of it? The ale is God. Yeah. So I thought, well, okay. I, Probably I might mouth have a glass of something like that. <laughs> I'm guessing at this point, but I think I'm right. I might have some ale at my layover in Philadelphia at 3 a.m. this morning. So, <laughs> all right. So next up, um, slide number 10. Uh, finally, in the spring of 1932, nearly a year after his appointment as Mexican mission president, Anton R. Ivins traveled with Melvin J. Ballard. I think Ballard had that look when he realized he had to go to Mexico to start straightening out this situation. Mm. Uh, Melvin J. Ballard. He had a son who was an Edsel salesman. Or (laughs) grandson, grandson. I should say. Well, he had a son and a grandson. Yes, but only the grandson was the Edsel salesman. Oh, I didn't know dad wasn't involved. I don't think so. Well, dad might have been. That would have been. Oh, hey, you're right. I think you're right. Look at that. How did those Edsels do? They uh, they flew off the lot like pancakes, hotcakes, we say. <laughs> okay. Um, Anton R. Ivans traveled with Melvin J. Ballard to Mexico to meet with the petitioning Mexican Mormons. And I believe by this time, the trip is in response to what is now the second convention, where the Mexican saints say, look, we pleaded with you guys. We've sent word to Salt Lake. We need a local leadership. Nobody still come to talk to us. And finally, Ballard and Ivans go there to straighten it out after the second time of the Saints petitioning Salt Lake to, to fix this situation. So is a convention like a conference where they all get together and vote to take a certain action and then notify Salt Lake by writing or other means of what their decisions are? Nailed it. Okay, so we're coming up on the third convention, right? You got it. I got it. Ivans approached the situation aggressively. He reprimanded the uh, members for their assertiveness in sending a petition to Salt Lake City. He returned to the United States and left them alone once again. Uh, but this time with a silent arrangement with, uh, with Isaiah Juarez, who is the district president, a.k.a. stake president, essentially, uh, with an agreement that, you you know, essentially like you stay out of here we'll take care of things. Don't bother. And they had the silent agreement to just kind of for Ivan's to just leave things alone. So even Um, in the 1930s, the church was against activism. Yeah. Right. Um, And they had this agreement until the end of Ivan's term in 1934. So the Cristero rebellion of 1926 had disrupted the religious atmosphere in Mexico for nine years. It forced all foreign clergy out of Mexico the ensuing isolation of the Mexican leaders from the church in Salt Lake City resulted in the understandable independence among them. Twice during Ivan's serving as mission president, the Mexican saints had petitioned the church headquarters to call a Mexican citizen as mission president. Now, Salt Lake, seeing that they have a mess on their hands, the church releases Anton Ivan's in 1934 
and they call Ray Pratt's half-brother, Harold Wilkin Pratt. By the way, it's about a decade early, but that mustache is going to be out of style in about another another nine or ten years, right? I know. You know, I saw a guy checking, in the checkout line at Walmart the other day who had one of those mustaches, so he's bringing it back. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody's ever going to be real cool with this one. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, they, they used to be popular. Remember, um, was Oliver Hardy? Yeah, right. St- Laurel and Hardy. He had one. It was all fine back then. It was very fashionable. Right before the forties. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because something happens in the forties that makes this mustache style go right down the drain. Yeah, the naming of babies Adolf also dropped off precipitously. <laughs> yes. So seeing as they had a mess on their hands, they release Anton Ivins in 1934. They call Ray Pratt's half-brother, Harold Wilkin Pratt, as the new Mexican mission president. While Pratt had lived stateside most of his life, he was born in Mexico July 16, 1899, and had uh, served a mission in Mexico between 1921 and 1923. Um, besides you know, being Ray Pratt's half-brother, I figure with that mustache, what could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> you got a picture of uh, his parents and there's yep. Helaman Pratt, the same dad, yep. but he's got a different mom, right? But that's the plural marriage part you were talking about. Right. So you've got dad who's practicing plural marriage and this is the wife that's the mother of Harold. And then the wife shown earlier was the mother of Ray Pratt. Right. And um, Harold's mother is Bertha. Who's she, sir? Bertha. Yeah. Bertha Wilkin. Um Harold Pratt was called to preside over the Mexican mission on January 1934 uh, because he was a Mexican citizen. Sorry, I don't know what <laughs> what was it. What was it you said, RFM? Because I'm just amusing myself. I said Bertha. Okay. Who's she, sir? Yeah, yeah, I don't. I, I Bertha isn't a real popular name either. No offense to any Berthas out there. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. okay. I'll explain it later. I don't right, want to see it on the air. I expect other people will be saying it in the live chat. I love it. Um. Because he's a Mexican citizen, he's a, he's not violating the law, just like Ray was a Mexican citizen. And so, uh, but by this time, that Cristeros thing had kind of come to an end. But also, by being a Mexican citizen, it just was a little safer for them, having just come off of this um, conflict that was going on in Mexico. And so, um, he presided for two and a half years from El, Pas- El Paso, while he simultaneously continued to serve as a counselor in the Juarez stake presidency. The Mexican saints independence away from Salt Lake church leadership and having a defunct mission president in Ivins who failed to connect the local saints to Salt Lake city's church leadership, along with strong feelings of nationalism and ethnic pride persuaded several local leaders in and around Mexico city to organize Soon after the news of Harold W. Pratt's appointment reached Mexico City, because he's not a national, he is a Mexican citizen, but he is as American and Caucasian uh, as you're going to find. And uh, so soon after the news uh, of appointment had reached Mexico City, Abel Paez, the first counselor in the Mexican district presidency, um, was at work. He was spurred on by his uncle, Margarito Batista Valencia, who summoned the saints to a crisis conference now called the third convention. And I just want to note here that we're going to spend a moment on Margarito um, because he's an important part of the Mexican saints as well. He was born in Mexico, 1878 on June 10th. He converted to the church on November 10th, 
1901 in what he described as a very spiritual experience. His conversion shows up stateside in the improvement era, which is up on the screen. He was one of the most articulate members of the church in Mexico. He was a, a member for many years. He was an experienced leader in the church, was an ordained high priest. And in a growing, in a very new growing area of the church, every high priest would be precious uh, to church leadership. And, and so he was a high priest. Uh, he had known and admired Ray Pratt. Uh, Batista was an uncommonly literate man and a gifted orator who had worked to educate himself studying English and living for many years in Salt Lake City. I just want to add too, by the way, I'm plagiarizing a ton of things in terms of what I'm saying tonight. Um, in the outline, when we publish this, which I don't know when that'll happen, but when it does, um, all of the quotes are linked to sources so that folks can read those. Um, where he taught the Spanish Americans branches gospel doctrine class in Sunday school. He had observed church government over a number of years, and he had done ordinance work in Salt Lake City uh, Temple. He had traveled to uh, stateside to the U.S. Uh, and had uh, interacted with church leadership in Salt Lake City and had participated in uh, church stuff uh, in the States uh, and had go. gotten quite a bit of experience. Yes. Did you notice that? It says a faith-promoting experience. This is in the improvement era from September. Is that 1920? 1920, I believe. Yes, September. Yes. But notice they put by M. Bautista, comma, a descendant of Father Lehi. Yeah, they don't want to put his first name for some reason, huh? Oh, I think that was a common thing. I'm focusing on the descendant of Father Lehi. Oh, for the good old days when we used to know who the Lamanites really were. We no longer know that uh, because we can't find Lamanite DNA anywhere, any Jewish DNA anywhere in these guys. So, um, all right. Uh, he had observed church government over a number of years, done ordinance work in Salt Lake City. Like many temple wor workers, Batista had become an expert genealogist. After 1934, he was back in Mexico helping the Mexican saints trace their an uh, ancestry. Batista took to heart many Book of Mormon prophecies that speak of the rise of the Lamanites, an avid scriptorian, he agreed with Ray Pratt and numerous other leaders that Mexican history was inseparable from Lamanite history and that the Book of Mormon promises were uh, inseparable from both. Ray Pratt had often expressed this theology to the Mexican saints, many of whom took great pride in their mighty Lamanite ancestors. Bautista, stimulated by Ray Pratt's sentiments, decided to write a book correlating Book of Mormon teachings with the Old Testament. Pratt, who was anxious to see more literature become available to the Mexican members, encouraged Batista. Now, this is Ray Pratt, who's encouraging Batista. So after Pratt's death, Batista persisted, and he completes his manuscript in 1934. He goes to Salt Lake. He gives them the manuscript. Guess who they ask to review it? Marky Peterson? No. Uh, Ray's, Ray's half-brother, Harold Pratt who says that the book is uh, a lot of gospel hobby, uh, a lot of uh, conjecture, and isn't doctrinal. And he essentially tells the brethren they should not do anything with uh, Batista's book. So you can imagine that Batista has a little bit of a, a edge to him when it comes to Harold Pratt, who, relate, who replaces, who's, who's the half-brother, who replaces Ray Pratt, who Batista would have had a lot of respect for. Um, mm -hmm. And just to Shades know that. George P. Lee. Yeah, which, you know, you and I were chatting about a little bit today that there's some of the same kind of stuff going on. 
All right, slide uh, 15. Um, sensing his people's mood, this is um, Isaiah Suarez, the district president, a.k.a. again, stake president, essentially, who was part of the first two conventions and in favor of pleading to Salt Lake to call a national Mexican to be their leader. But now when it comes to this third convention, he senses that the mood is a little more frustrated and he now sides with the church. He's very apprehensive about the preparations for this third convention. Sensing his people's mood, Isaiah Suarez, president of the mission's Mexican district, was alarmed by their preparations for the third convention. He could see the implications, perhaps better than anyone, having struggled through nine years and many storms to lead the mission. Juarez had learned to read the pulse of the Mexican saints accurately. He knew this would be no simple petition. Quite a few Mexican Mormons were determined to settle for nothing less than a Mexican leader. However, unusual, even odd, such a demand was for Mormons, whose authorities are always appointed from above and never selected by the congregation. Juarez also sensed accurately the mood of the authorities in Salt Lake City. He knew there would be no Mexican mission president coming, forthcoming. The church, he reasoned, would not succumb to uh, pressure politics, and he foresaw an unfortunate and inevitable clash. Uh, slide 16. Isaiah Suarez, siding with the church, tried to dissuade Abel Paez out of confronting the brethren in Salt Lake. Juarez was no passive fence-sitter. Having taken a position against the Third Convention, he then tried to soothe and persuade the Mexican saints. Finally, he issued a circular letter, and I just mean he's the stake president. He sends out a letter which is circulated amongst the district, uh, explaining that the meeting was unauthorized and out of order, and that those who participated in it would be considered rebellious and therefore run the risk of excommunication. He contacted Harold Pratt post-haste and tried to sensitize him to the impending trouble and its roots. He met repeatedly with Abel Piaz. Again, this is his counselor in his district presidency, uh, trying to persuade him. Uh, Piaz at first agreed to Juarez's um, uh, point of view. And so Juarez at first convinces Piaz to call off his confrontation with Salt Lake. But Piaz returned to his position after speaking to Margarito Batista. And I'm sure Batista, again, already has ill feelings towards Harold Pratt. And these two men have worked tirelessly over a decade to try to get uh, a, a leader pointed in Mexico who would actually, you know, obviously not just be part of Mexico, but would be responsive to the Mexican saints as they needed leadership. And Ivan's was completely absent. Um, so what we end up with is the third convention. So originally, uh, Abel Piaz, who is the photo there in the center of the slide, uh, he is kind of the one heading up this, these convention, at least this third convention and his counselor in the, or his uh, president in his district presidency there, Isaiah Suarez on the left on that slide, uh, uh, you know, talks him out of doing this third convention, but very quickly he talks with Batista and he's back in on wanting to do it. So the third convention convened on the 26th of April, 1936. An observer was sent to take notes for Presidents Juarez and uh, for Mission President Harold Pratt, who did not attend. 
they thought it would be too risky for them to be against the meeting and to show up and sit in it. So they stayed home and they sent an observer to take notes. The conventionist quickly decided that Salt Lake City leaders had misunderstood their previous request. Even though Harold Pratt had come from the Mormon colonies and was a Mexican citizen, he was not one by blood and race and certainly not culturally. The Saints' new petition was intended to convey their desire for a president who was Mexican by blood and spirit. And it says here, I'm going to pronounce this wrong probably, but De Raza e Sangre. Um, reasoning that the church's general authorities might not be aware of qualified Mexican members, the third convention decided to nominate a candidate. They considered several men, including Narcisco Sandoval, Margarito Batista. In the end, however, the convention settled on Abel Paez. They did not intend to demand Paez's appointment, but rather to clearly inform Salt Lake City authorities that qualified Mexicans were available. After making their main decision, the convention has strengthened their, strengthened their petition in two ways. First, wanting their leaders to recognize their intense seriousness, they agreed to gather signatures for the petition. Second, the conventionist authorized a commission composed of Abel Paez, Narcisco Sandoval, and Enrique Gonzalez to travel to Salt Lake City and personally present the petition and supporting documents to the Mormon Church's general authorities. Its business concluded, the third convention then adjourned. And you can see the problem, right, RFM? They, they rather than go, hey, here's 50 names. See, we have lots of people here who could do the job. They send one name to Salt Lake City and say they're trying to get across the idea that there are worthy Mexican members present, but by sending one name, it seems to give, especially in a, an organization like Mormonism, uh, it seems to kind of imply that these guys are telling Salt Lake what to do. And as you well know, that almost never works with the church. Right. And I don't know a lot about this, but just with the factual situation that you're setting forth here makes me kind of suspicious as to what their actual motivations were. Yeah. Because like you say, if all we want to say is we got qualified people here, here's a list of three people that are qualified and we'd like to have somebody, but instead we're voting in the convention on one and sending that one. And he goes with the documents, right? To Salt Lake city, Abel yeah. Paez. Yeah. He was the one who was nominated and he goes to Salt Lake city with the documents. Right. And, and as you point out, if they would have sent three names, it probably would have come across a little softer than sending one. Uh, and as you point out by him going himself, that really does seem a little bit like an imposition, doesn't it? So mm -hmm. the church doesn't respond well. Um, There's a shock. Yeah. When the observer reported back to Harold Pratt and Isaiah Juarez that Paez had gone through with the convention and relayed the outcome, uh, Isaiah Juarez wept, hearing that his counselor of many years had betrayed him. Because again, when he left his last conversation with Abel Paez, he had softened him up and Abel had agreed that they would not move forward with the convention. So they ended up doing it anyway, and, and he uh, holds the position that uh, these, uh, these determinations out of, the, out of the meeting are going to take place. Meanwhile, the last time Juarez had a conversation with Abel Paez, it, he seemed to feel like he was getting through to him and that it would be called off. So it wasn't 
and he sheds tears uh, having seen his counselor betray him. Um, Harold Pratt realized that the Mexican brethren would soon implement their decisions. Seeking to prevent that, Pratt immediately contacted Abel Paez. They set a meeting for the 30th of April, the Thursday following the convention. So when they get together on the appointed day, Abel Paez, he meets with uh, Harold Pratt, the mission president. He meets with uh, Isaiah Suarez and uh, Bernabe Para, so the district president and the other counselor in the district, district presidency. And after a long discussion, the men agreed on four points. So there's four men in the room, and there doesn't seem to be any argument here. They agreed on these four points. First, Paez would terminate the third convention's activities, including the gathering of signatures for the petition. Moreover, Paez would thereafter take no unilateral action on any matter without the district presidency's consent, a hallowed leadership practice within the Mormon faith. Second, to show their unity and harmony, the four leaders, Paez, Juarez, Para, and Pratt, would together visit all the local branches. Third, each would send a separate report to the third convention to the first presidency of the church. Fourth, all would prepare to visit Salt Lake City soon to discuss the Mexicans' feelings and desires with the general authorities. The upcoming October general conference was set as a tentative date for the trip. So we're not going to do anything more with this third convention. You're going to back off from the things you're saying. We're going to go around and explain all of this to all of the saints here in this district. And uh, we're all going to send a separate report about what's going on here. And then we'll all four meet up with Salt Lake. Uh, the problem is Harold Pratt doesn't keep his word. Um, yeah. And I'm saying that then it's interesting to me that they're going around to try and show this unity and yet they trust each other so much that they insist on each of them being able to send their own version of what happened at the third convention in a report to Salt Lake city. Right. Instead of all four sitting down and writing one document. Right. Right. You yeah. would think it would be factual, but apparently facts are disagreed upon. Somebody wants to make sure their side quietly gets uh, a voice of the brethren, huh? I'll bet Pratt's voice got the biggest impact. I bet it was his idea to send four separate reports. It might have been. Yeah. So Paez was to be disappointed by these four agreements because as the district presidency visited the various branches, Pratt and Juarez seemed to equivocate on their position. Pratt said that he alone would take the petition to Salt Lake City at conference time. Then, instead of assuring church members that the third convention desires would be enacted through regular church channels, Juarez and Pratt made it increasingly clear that both the convention's procedures and its goals were out of order. They suggested that Paez and his colleagues were wolves among the Lord's sheep and warned all members against listening to them. Mainline Mexican Mormons, approximately two-thirds of the membership, had because again, there's a significant polygamous uh you know, group that came stateside that are Caucasians that came from America during this polygamy time. So there's a lot of those folks that are now in Mexico with their children, their spouses, a generation maybe later as well. Um, right. But the, again, two thirds of the membership had made, let's see here, let me back up just a second. Mainline Mexican Mormons, approximately two thirds of the membership had made their anti third convention opinions known to Juarez and Para. So about two-thirds of the folks 
are siding with the third convention. Um, are they are they siding with it or are they anti third convention? Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. You're right. Thank That's you. Okay. Mainline Mexican Mormons, approximately two thirds of the membership, had made their anti third convention opinions known to Juarez and Para, and no doubt Pratt had received communications on the issue from Salt Lake City. No in doubt. Any, yeah. In any case, conventionists were incensed. They wondered how Paez could believe that Pratt would do anything but present the third convention's case negatively. Soon as Paez makes this agreement with Harold Pratt and Isaiah Juarez, and then Pratt and Juarez break it, you have to imagine, one, he senses a deception and a loss of trust. But it's going to be inevitable that the story is going to get out about how all this went down. And the Mexican saints, to some degree, are going to lose trust and faith in uh, Harold Pratt as well. In any case, the conventionists were uh, incensed. Um, and Joan Galloway makes the uh, percipient comment, the church really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On some things Bravo. it is consistent, huh? Yeah. With Pratt and Juarez having broke the agreement and called out Paez and others as being in apostasy, Paez had no choice but to feel tricked and betrayed. Also, Harold Pratt seemed to lose what little trust he had left with a significant number of the Mexican saints. Paez felt he had little choice but to move forward with the original third convention's ruling. So now we get into the aftermath. Um, almost one-third of the Mexican saints disaffect. Salt Lake, in turn, moved forward with Harold Pratt as the mission president and 2,000 of the Mexican saints remain. So about 800 Mexican saints disaffect from mainline LDS church. And essentially, um, they it's going to be kind of hard to explain, but they are separate in some ways. They they are adamant that, they're, um, that the things they've asked for be met. And they are separating themselves from the mainline church but they still see the president of the church as the prophet and they still want to continue all the programs of the church as business as usual. Um, so about 800 split off and then 2000 remain. Uh, and so this, this is Mexican saints as a whole. So almost one third of all the saints in Mexico to some degree disaffect from the mainline church. It's like the war in heaven all over again. Yes. And the 2000 that stayed, there were many of them, it said, that shared in the frustration with Pratt and with the church generally. The third conventionist maintained belief in Salt Lake City's leadership and continued, at least early on, practicing mainline Orthodox Mormonism, but simply waited on Salt Lake to meet their demands. So the church now has to respond. And J. Reuben Clark writes a letter uh, to the Mexican saints, and he lays down the law. In November of 1936, the first presidency formally responded. J. Reuben Clark Jr., a member of the first presidency and the former U.S. ambassador to Mexico, prepared a carefully written letter to be read in all the congregations. Within, Clark declared that the people who signed the convention's petition were entirely out of order that the mission president was not the representative of the members to the president of the church, but of the president to the people. Remember which way you face. That's right. King Benjamin in those tents even, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, 
present to the people, and that the representative should therefore be acquainted with all the church's procedures in order to prevent disorder and disruption, that none of the church's missions were presided over, excuse me, by any other men from the bosom of the church, that if the president of the church ever felt so inspired... Oh, well, by the way, I'm sorry, yeah. it just says uh, that uh, church's missions were presided over by any other than men from the bosom of the church. Right. Sorry. Thank you. That essentially okay. Salt Lake gets to pick who leads and nobody else is going to tell them what to do. Um, that if the president of the church ever felt so inspired, he would appoint one of their number to preside over them. That Mexicans had an unusual number of their own people in responsible positions anyway. You know, they're they're the nursery leaders. They're the they're the primary president at the local district. They're the you know, they're the elders core or whatever it is in the local district. They're they're the guys. And the gals, yeah, and apparently right? the entire district presidency. Yeah. And so they're basically saying, look, you guys have got Mexican leadership everywhere. It's such a petty thing for you to be doing what you're doing here. And it's out of line. Um, the Mexicans were not exclusively. So he also says that the Mexicans were not exclusively among Mormons of the blood of Israel. And that both Mexicans and North American Mormons were from the same family, that of Joseph. And that all of the Book of Mormon promises, Book of Mormon's promises applied as well to one people as to another, and so on and so forth for 14 typescript pages. That's a that's a lot of telling these folks that they're in the wrong. I don't think that was very carefully worded. Yeah, he probably had that grumpy face on when he wrote that letter, too, you know. So. I know. I know. But um this is very important, that last line especially, because he's telling them that regardless of what the Book of Mormon says, and by the way, when I read it as objectively as I possibly can, even back when I was a TBM, I'm getting the impression that it's giving primacy of place to the Lamanites. And that's something strange in the Book of Mormon, especially when Jesus is talking in all those chapters where he's among the Nephites that we never talk about in church. Mm -hmm. You know, we just talk about just a couple of little things in his visit but we overlook pretty much his sermons. But the, the Lamanites, according to the Book of Mormon, the descendants of the Lamanites are going to be the ones who will build the city of Zion. And the non-Lamanite Mormons will help them. But the Lamanites get to build the city of Zion and they're the ones who are gonna be in charge. And this is, these are the kinds of things, I'm sure, that the Mexican saints there are seeing and certainly the kind of things that George P. Lee saw as well, and that they, bring to the attention of the leaders who are telling them, no, that's not what the Book of Mormon says. So you have the white leadership of the church telling them that the white leadership of the church is the white leadership of the church. And I think have to reinterpret the Book of Mormon in order to make it support their claims of white leadership over Lamanite leadership. And I'm guessing now with all the DNA evidence we have, that city of Zion will never get built. Well, there's still Denver Snuffer. There's still Denver Snuffer. Let's let's place our hope there. Not all is lost. Denver Snuffer, you are our only hope. <laughs> Princess Leia, I did get that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first presidency themselves learned quite soon that the letter had solved nothing. No doubt, somewhat exasperated by this time, the authorities decide to send Anton R. Ivans back to Mexico one more time to attempt a re reconciliation. Remember, this is the mission president who never interacted with the, with his mission, the saints in his mission and never traveled to Mexico to preside over them in any way. 
He, he was an absent leader and the church thought this guy might solve the problem. So they, uh, they sent him back one more time to Mexico to attempt a reconciliation. Um, although Ivans was considered the church's frontline expert on Mexico, his previous trips, as we had talked about, had been largely unsuccessful because as he perceived, the Mexican Mormons did not respect his authority. And as they perceived, he was an absent leader who, who didn't take them seriously or prioritize them. So Apostle George F. Richards, who also has a stern look on his face, one of the senior members of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, was appointed to accompany Ivans. What could go wrong? Um, so at least what's they're the, going. Yeah, at least they're going. Um, so they end up setting up this meeting, and everybody goes to the meeting. Everybody's ready to hear these two church leaders who have come from the States, traveled over, and are going to try to reunify all of this and put it all back together. But in this meeting where all these people are gathered, there are two uh, government officials in government official clothing that are sitting kind of in the back. And what is government official clothing? Is that yeah, like police uniforms? Um, the federal, the federal no, no, no. no. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the specifics of this. What I know is that very quickly, folks loyal to the church is church's side of this argument recognized quickly that there were government officials present at the meeting, and because there were still some, there was still some uh, legality in terms of non-Mexican citizens coming into the country and presiding in some form of leadership. Now, again, the Cristeros Rebellion is over and the the laws have eased up, but they're still there. And the government could certainly still make a move if it wanted to. And so the um, so Ivans and uh, George Richards, they learn that there's government officials there and they fear that there's a chance they might be arrested. Now, what came out in the story was that these two folks who were government officials, it is alleged that they were actually just investigators who were taking the discussions from the missionaries. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it's not exactly Alma and the four sons of King Benjamin, right? Yeah. Preaching to the Lamanites. So the room is packed full of people and, uh, Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. You go ahead and get your thought together. I apologize. By which I mean, oh, please. the Book of Mormon story is we're going to go and we're going to preach to the Lamanites regardless of the fact that we're likely to get arrested and possibly even killed. Oh, thank you, by the way. Yes, like uh, all throughout Mormonism, there is a, uh, in, in Mormon canon, right, there is this defiance by the Book of Mormon prophets, uh, Abinadi being a great example, who will just put themselves in the way of danger um, because the Lord will provide, he'll take care of them. And yet in this situation, fear got the best of these guys. Right. And I said the four sons of Benjamin, of course, I meant the four sons of Messiah. Yeah. I made an early book of Mormon mistake of confusing Benjamin for Messiah myself. Joseph Smith did that too. Yeah. So I'm in good company. <laughs> um, they perceived that they might be arrested. Meanwhile, Folks on the other side of the aisle said, hey, these guys were just taking the discussions. There was no intention to do anything uh, along that line. But because they are, are warned that there are officials there, they bail. They never address the people. They're put back on a train fearing they'll be arrested by Mexican officials. Um, Read the second bullet point because I am just astonished that this confusion could still occur a year later. It's like, yeah. did anybody just ask these uh, the Mexican leadership? what it was they meant by their 
petition. How was you, this still a confusion on their part? Did they just not talk to each other? Well, you, Ivan's doesn't even want to go to the place to, to have a conversation with these folks. So that might uh, be part oh, of the problem. Yeah, I think he is a part of the problem. LDS leaders misunderstood the third convention as imposing Paez be called rather than showing there were several worthy Mexican nationals who potentially could be called and hence had a tone of distrust and misunderstanding uh, that magnified the situation. The church began disciplinary measures on the 6th, 7th, and 8th of May, 1937. Courts were convened in San Pedro Matir uh, and sentences handed down Andres C. Gonzalez, Jr. wrote that eight conventionist leaders were excommunicated for rebellion, having worked against the mission authorities, uh, guilty of uh, insubordination, having completely disobeyed the orders of the mission authorities, and apostasy, having failed to recognize the Mormon church's authority. A serious divide. There's a commonality between all three of those reasons for getting excommunicated. And that is? The church's authority. (laughs) You got it. Uh, remember, in this church, you can do a lot of things. You can you can take Jesus figuratively. You can believe the Book of Mormon is not literal. But don't you dare say those prophet seers and revelators aren't prophet seers and revelators, or call them a liar. I found out. Oh yeah, it is the cardinal sin in Mormonism. Yeah, who's at the who's at the top of what you can't pick on or criticize? It's not Jesus. It's no, the no, no. Of the it's the leaders of the church. Yeah, you can say whatever the hell you want about Jesus. <laughs> we're bigger than Jesus, but we're not bigger than President Nelson. Nope. Um, having worked against the mission authorities and insubordination, we said apostasy, we said a serious divide ensued uh, between those loyal to the mainline church and the third conventionist. Distrust and bad mouthing persisted, and eventually deep separation between the two groups followed. Again, hence an apostasy of a th- about a third of the Mexican saints. It got to the point where if, if, uh, the conventionist members ever went into a mainline chapel to attend a meeting. Again, they still believe the prophet's the prophet. They still accept the church's authority. They just have these demands in particular that have to be met, and they're not going to go along until uh, they are. But when they would show up in a mainline congregation and sit down in the pew, the rest of the pew would completely empty out. Nobody wanted to sit with these folks because they saw them as being an apostasy and such rhetoric had occurred uh, in regards to these folks who had separated themselves from the mainline church in very much the same way today that anybody who seems to have doubts or loses their faith seems to be, there's a sort of shunning that goes on in Mormonism and there's a lot of distrust and there's a lot of labels that we use, uh, the tares among the wheat, the chafe among the wheat, um, you know, uh, lazy learners, for instance, um, and, and much of that is still happening in Mexico. These folks are very loyal to their system. And when they perceive someone's not signaling, signaling anymore that they're a believing faithful member, then they're also getting some sort of lesser treatment um, by the mainline saints. So it's almost like the ones who are disaffected still believe in the top leadership of the church, but they somehow think that it's just the middle management that's the problem. I think in part, and I think they're just they don't think that Salt Lake really understands them very well and has dropped the ball to the point where they want somebody who can represent their needs and speak to them as one knowing kind of what they're going through. Mm. And, and, you know, I can relate to that. And I can also sort of relate to the LDS church's perspective here too. Uh, It's like no exaltation without representation. 
Right, right. There's that whole. Uh, that whole I stole thing. that from my good friend Rebecca Biblioteca. I have to say that, so as not to be accused of plagiarism. <laughs> Bednar, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> John O'Reed. <laughs> All right, so uh, slide number twenty-six. Um, what happened? So we, I was going to say we could stop here, but we've got plenty of time, so we'll finish this up. So slide twenty-six. What happened to the third conventionist? Uh, they organized Sunday schools, conducted sacrament meetings, established mutual improvement associations. They functioned very much like a normal Mormon congregation. Like the mainline church, they blessed infants, baptized children, ordained men to the priesthood. Conventionist men and women were sent out as missionaries to preach the word to all who would listen. They constructed at least six new meeting houses. I, by the way, I get... I'm. Uh, I'll say it here because I, I, remind me when we get to a later part of this, remind me about these six meeting houses. Cause I want to, I want to make a comment, but I don't want to do it now. Cause I think I'll ruin the ending, but they constructed six. What's that? Yeah, please. Making a note, six please. meeting houses. Yep. They constructed six new meeting houses and in accordance with Mormon custom, they dedicated them to the Lord. They produced some religious literature. You can see the one magazine cover there. They produced some religious literature. For example, a magazine entitled, El Sendero Lemonita, the Lamanite path is what that translates to, which contained articles such as how the gospel came to Mexico, the blessed Gentiles about which the scriptures speak, and reports of various convention, conferences, and activities. By this point, they are calling themselves the conventionists. They are the third convention. Um, and so the church begins to make efforts to bring these folks back. And finally, the church realizes that its hardline approach isn't working. And under George Albert Smith's uh, presidency, the effort to love these saints and to show kindness and, and, and to interact with them, this would have been about the 1940s, 1945, 1946, in that kind of those years, um, they begin to show kindness and, and to interact with the conventionist in healthy ways to begin to make headway. And a lot of this, George Albert Smith initiates it. He very much says, look, the, the people before me were too tough. And that's not the right way to do it. We ought to be more Christ-like. And so he sends out a new mission president by the name of Arwell Pierce. Well, good for George Albert Smith, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Arwell Pierce was a month short of being 60 years old when he entered Mexico as mission president. Given his age... Some wondered if he would be up to the task of holding the church together in Mexico, a challenge that had taxed a series of mission presidents beyond their capabilities. Um, actually, Pierce's age may have worked in his favor. And I'm borrowing this, I believe, from the BYU Studies article. The problems, uh, the problems in Mexico called for someone with patience, wisdom, insight, and compassion, characteristics frequently associated with maturity, and possessed in good measure by President Pierce. Pierce's assigned task was to bring the third conventionist back to the fold. David O. McKay, who is the president, I believe, of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time that he was given this, he eventually, uh, David O. McKay becomes a member of the First Presidency um, with both, I think, the previous prophet and then becomes uh, a counselor in the presidency of um, of George, uh, man, George Albert Smith, right? And yes. Yep. And uh, what David O. McKay tells him is he says, we don't have a divided mission. 
We have a big family quarrel, unquote, adding that, quote, you are the Abraham Lincoln who must save this union, unquote. Arwell Pierce observed that their reasons for apostasy were certainly not doctrinal, and yet conventionists were outside of the community of the church. Studying the situation, he wondered how how brotherhood could have decayed so completely. During the five years since the the schism, the issues had become clouded, remembrances diffused or altered, and passions changed. Slowly and painstakingly, he put all of his diplomatic skills to the task. Realizing that feelings had been hurt, he set out to heal those wounds. Although the conventionist's initial response was antagonism, that soon changed. First, to respect and later to admiration, in part because Pierce met every travail with kindness and understanding. Pierce began by attending the third convention meetings and conferences. Slowly and carefully, he introduced himself and built friendships with the third convention members and leaders. He even tried to assist the convention in its own programs, inviting Hmm. its members to the mission home to pass on information from Salt Lake City, giving advice when asked, and distributing recently translated church literature. And he talked with Abel Paez and his wife. He also spoke with Othon Espinoza and El Poliono Arze, or Arzate, Julio Garcia, and even Margarito Batista, all of whom had been principal leaders in the Third Convention. Always ready to listen and to understand, he extended personal hospitality and acceptance unconditionally. After weighing all that he had heard, Pierce concluded that the third convention problems could have been handled better. So he agrees with them. Given the circumstances, he even thought that some of the convention's complaints were justified. Although having an ethnic Mexican mission president was the third conventionist's primary concern, they also wanted a building program for chapels, access to church literature, and an opportunity for their young people to go on missions, all privileges that the members in the U.S. had. They also wanted an educational system for their children, like the system that the Anglo members had established in northern Mexico. Pierce realized that he did not object to the conventionist goals, although one could legitimately wonder how programs to achieve them could possibly have been funded in the 1930s. On the other hand, he saw how the third conventionist methods for achieving their goals had brought them trouble. Pierce did not approve of the Third Convention's rebellion and withdrawal from the church. Because of his willingness to listen, however, disagreeing people for the first time in nearly a decade were discussing the issues rather than shouting about them. By the way, notice what type of leadership in the church works and what type of leadership doesn't, or maybe it gets it gets results, but it causes hard feelings and fractures later on. And I also want to note Arwell Pierce comes into this situation not having lived it. So he is he is uh, uh, an outsider, essentially, to the situation itself. Notice that George Albert Smith, in a way, is sort of an outsider. Now, of course, he would have been in the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency prior to him being the president of the church. But he wasn't the one who made the leadership decisions that caused this rift. And, and so he, as an outsider to some extent gets to take a new approach. And notice that in today's church, that the church leaders, while they're alive, will almost never make the right move on important issues. 
And it always takes social pressure that is uh, extreme on the outside, or it takes those leaders dying and the next generation to pick up the issue and actually let uh, whatever pride is in the way from handling a situation uh, as Christ would handle it, which I think Arwell Pierce did a very good job of. Right. That was a thought that came to my mind is that this is an example of the power of Christ-like conduct. And unfortunately, yeah. it may also be the reason why I have never heard the name Arwell Pierce before tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you haven't, huh? Uh, me either. This was completely new to me. Like for one third of the saints in Mexico to apostatize from the church and for you and I to have never heard this story tells you about how, and again, the church has published information on this. You can find it kind of like uh, that first vision story in 1972. You can, you can find these stories as well, but they are few and far between and they aren't part of the regular curriculum. Although you asked today if this is included in saints and I don't know that. And, and I know that all the volumes of saints, I don't think is written yet, but I would hope that this does make it into our standard church curriculum history. Want to make a bet on that? Uh, I think there's too many faith promoting things to talk about to cover this story. Yeah, probably. Um, while Pierce did not approve of the convention's rebellion and withdrawal from the church, uh, but because of his willingness to listen, however, disagreeing people for the first time are sitting down and talking about it. In the meantime, the conventionists had generally maintained doctrinal integrity. They had done a lot of sorry, proselyting in central Mexico and had promoted much interest in the Book of Mormon. Given all of these factors, reunification was possible and desirable. So Pierce listened. He argued, he lectured, he sympathized, he persuaded, and he worked long hours. He often told them, the brethren are willing to give you everything you want, but not the way you want it. Again, this is all coming out of a BYU Studies article, which I thought was pretty impressive. The conventionists recognized him as a friend. Its leaders even asking him to speak in convention conferences. He earned their trust to the point where he was asked to come in and speak at their meetings. That to me is impressive. He did so carefully honoring their confidence in the initial stages by avoiding sensitive issues, speaking instead on neutral subjects such as prayer, things they agreed on, right? The third conventionist began to visit mainline church meetings and Pierce characteristically asked them to sit near the front, whereas in years past when the conventionist had visited a mainline branch, the seats would empty of mainline members as quickly as the conventionist sat down. Finally, Paez began to soften and warm up to Pierce and started to think with cautious enthusiasm about reunification. So they returned to the fold. Eventually, 1,200, now again, 800 left, 1,200 came back. They were growing. Um, eventually, 1,200 third conventionists returned under George Albert Smith's leader, leadership in 1946. Several members of the third convention were temporarily excommunicated by the LDS church during the period in which it was active. Although most of these were changed to the lesser punishment of disfellowshipment by president George Albert Smith in 1946, signaling a compromise. They'd been excommunicated, but George Albert Smith with a wave of the hand turns their uh, excommunications into disfellowshipment. Uh, re, uh, reproachment, Continued 
with President Smith's visit to Mexico that year, which is in that bottom left picture, the person to Abel Piazes, who is standing at the center and standing up and, and speaking, immediately to his right is President George Albert Smith. Um, the Smith's visit to Mexico that year resulting in most third conventionists returning to fellowship of the LDS uh, church. And so they, they almost all come back. Uh, off of Wikipedia, there was this note. Uh, Though scholars had believed the third convention movement had died out by the 1970s and 80s, anthropologist Thomas Murphy, who we're going to have on in a couple of weeks to talk about this issue uh, and to share his insights of what he's learned in his, uh, not only a study, but by his going there and looking for these folks that didn't come back to the church. So in the 1970s and 80s, anthropologist Thomas Murphy located an active third conventionist community in Ozumba, Mexico in 1996. So he was there in the seven, or sorry, they had died out allegedly in the seventies and eighties. But when he went there, he found a group of them still in 1996. The group was situated in Colonia Industrial, founded in 1947 as the community of Margarito Batista, a prominent third conventionist. As of 2011, there were, we're still 800 people living in Colonia Industrial, and all are members of a church officially named El Reino de Dios in su plenitud. And again, I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right. I did take Spanish for two years, but I only learned a bunch of swear words and my name in Spanish as Guillermo. But what it means is the kingdom of God in its fullness. I always find it interesting, RFM, all the breakoff church, all the breakoff uh, churches from original, you know, Mormonism up until Joseph Smith's death. And every one of them seemed to want to have some sort of slight variation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's the Church of Jesus Christ of the Last Days. There's the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you have this, the kingdom of God in its fullness. There's always these, you know, obviously for whatever purpose, legal or otherwise, there's all these variations of the true church's name in all of these breakoff groups. Um, though adherents preferred to call themselves Mormons, the group practiced plural marriage and communal principles of the law of consecration and seemed to be moderately affluent. They were affiliated with the Apostolic United Brethren uh, Mormon Fundamentalist Church and saw Owen Allred as a prophet. And just for those who are uh, curious, the Apostolic United Brethren breakoff of early Mormonism is the group that, for instance, Cody Brown and the Sister Wives, that's, that's their group that they belong to. And it is a breakoff of Mormonism that, um, that certainly still practices polygamy, uh, but is disconnected from like Centennial Park or uh, Warren Jeff's group in Colorado City. It's a completely different variation of Mormonism. Um, but I think they all tie in together um, as the church entered the post-manifesto and, and polygamy came to a close. Uh, and another third conventionist group, about 300 strong, was also rediscovered by Murphy in 1997 and exists in San Gabriel, Omatsa, I'm going to say it wrong, but O-M-E-T-O-T-Z-T-L-A, Puebla. And it is called 
la iglesia de los santos de la plenitud de los tiempos, the church of Jesus Christ of the saints of the fullness of times. And uh, that's, I think, it. I wanted to show a few pictures, though. Uh, any thoughts from you as we've kind of gone through the main data, and then we can spend just a couple of minutes going through the photos, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow out if you guys want to do calls or not. I'll leave that up to you. Oh, I was doing some research while you were talking, and I lose the bet because in Saints, Volume 3, Chapter 24, titled The Aim of the Church, they do address the Third Convention. Do they, did you get a chance to gloss over it to see kind of how they present the story? Well, um, they actually go into some detail. They do one part, and then they go back to something else that's going on in Salt Lake City, and then they go back to it. I do notice that, according to this article, uh, in June, this would have been 1936, as part of this uh, letter or document submitted to the First Presidency. It says, in June, conventionists drafted an 18-page petition to the First Presidency, and then they quote from it, which sounds a little bit different from what we've been hearing before. This is what is quoted in Saints. We very respectfully ask that you grant us two things. First, that our church grant us a mission president who is Mexican, and second, that our church accept and authorize the candidate we choose. Ooh, so it does sound like they put their guy across and that's the guy that needed to be picked. I was wondering about that. Yeah, because as you pointed out, to select one person looks like that's really what their goal was. And um, I'm expecting this is a correct quote. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm reading it now from uh, the church website. So... There may have been, I don't know, uh, cause for concern on both ends of this particular stick. Yeah. And and just a reminder, I can understand their frustration. They had a they had a mission president who never even went into their country. Right. Yeah. So um, I guess we put something else back up here. <clears throat> I assume Maven, you're getting ready to put the PowerPoint back on. Perfect. Oh, I got you. I, I see that as well. Perfect. Let me uh, let me go here to the end. Sorry, give me a second, folks. I'm just trying to grab. I'm going to add this to the stream. And we can flip through the rest of them here. So I got some pictures here, but I was going to say we can understand their frustration. Um. They have a mission president in Ivans who never even goes into their country. He doesn't he doesn't connect with them. He doesn't instruct them. He doesn't reach out to them. He's not talking to them. He's absent as can be. They they meet a couple of times trying to um trying to be seen and dealt with and taken seriously and not be second class citizens of the church. And so the church sends out the half brother of this mission president that they were deeply fond of and had deep respect for, but who comes in and isn't really uh, connecting with them um, either. And, and just by his behavior, when him and Abel Pius, uh, Abel Pius had made an agreement, those four agreements, and he broke them, that sort of promising to do something a certain way and then backtracking 100% on what you just said, you, you just, you, you kind of showed your character and by doing that, by trying to, in a tricky way, um, have Piaz come out looking like an apostate when you agreed to do something different, you can't blame these folks for losing their trust in these two mission presidents 
who seem to have dealt with the Mexican saints in less than honorable fashion and less than uh, the way that any of us would want to be dealt with uh, as members of the church or as human beings. And so I can understand some of that. But uh, some of these are photos that happen kind of along the way as uh, Mission President Arwell Pierce there is the second from the left. Uh, but you've got Paez and Juarez on his sides and then the other gentleman uh, there, Bernabe uh, Para. Um, and then you've got this third convention uh group that had a picture taken. Uh, here's Arwell Pierce baptizing someone. And if you look right behind his hand that's raised, there's uh, Abel Paez. Um, and so you can see that these two really did develop a, a deep friendship and, and love for each other. And uh, here's another photo, Arwell Pierce sitting. And there is the entire district presidency behind him with their arms on him. So this guy really did go in and win these folks over. And he really should be commended as really the the hero in this story um, for operating in a way that the church had not up to that point, and him being the one by being kind of a Christ-like example uh, brought these saints back into the fold. Abel Paez as a young missionary, Margarito Batista's patriarchal blessing. I have not sat and read that, but if folks want to go back and watch this and pause the screen right there, you should be able to read it. I'm not sure if he was promised to twinkle or if he was going to build the temple in Zion or what was the promises made to him, but that is his patriarchal blessing. Strangely, it's almost identical to my patriarchal it probably, blessing. And to every other person, Mexico, American, or otherwise, yeah. Uh, Arwell Pierce and his wife, uh, this photo was dated uh, March 7th, 1950. And those are all the slides that I've got. And that, my friends is the third convention. So I'm going to step out of the way. I'm going to set up the screen so um, you guys can do your thing. Uh, Maven, are you wanting to come on as well? Or are you wanting to stay back there? I think I need to come on if I'm okay. going to have the calls coming from then, my sound. Yep. I'm going to exit. I'm going to set up the screen so it looks good with you two on it. And then okay. uh, I'll get out of the way. Okay. Okay. Bill, have a safe flight. Okay. Have a great day, guys. Bye, Bill. Bye -bye. Can everyone hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Okay. Bill Real Perfect. has left the building. Okay. So we do have one caller. I don't have a name, but since they're the only one, they should know who they are. I am hoping this works. One second. Guys, let me know if there's um, um, an echo. Okay. Caller, you are on the air. Can you go ahead and state your name? Oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. Bill, Bill. Hi. I forgot to remind him about Hold the six meeting second, houses. Sorry. Oh, the six meet real quick. Six meeting houses. I'm going to bet that the church went ahead and used those once they reunified. They were already dedicated. They probably rededicated them, but I bet those were adopted into the church. You're never going to pass oh, off. Hello. You're not going to pass up a good meeting house. You're probably right, and half of them have probably been sold because they're not being used anymore. <laughs> you probably all have. Okay, have fun, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, let me let me see if I can get them back. Here we go. Okay, sorry. Um, we, uh, we were just asking Bill about those uh, six meeting houses. Um, so can you go ahead and state your name one more time? Hi, I'm Sarah. Okay, did you hear that RFM? Hi, Sarah. Okay, perfect, okay. 
Go ahead. Hi. I just wanted to say my husband and I, longtime viewers of the show, um, I served my mission in Mexico and I had never heard this story. So it was very interesting. And it also kind of, I feel like speaks to some problems that may still be going in there with just how white presenting you are and that being involved in leadership and people who are half Mexican or have ties to family living in Utah are kind of taken higher in leadership. Um, and it's just interesting and also so sad that such a beautiful culture is a race because people come in and say things to them. Did you have any examples of what is said to them uh, that helps erase their culture? Oh, just, I guess, how people can dress or present themselves in church. Um, it's definitely, the church does a good job of making the buildings very beautiful and does a pretty good job of putting them in accessible places, kind of unlike in the United States where they're tucked away in random neighborhoods in Mexico, they're kind of more out in the center. So you get a lot of people wanting to come and it's really sad if you see maybe people who are more ethnic and have less European blood in them or DNA, they kind of aren't taken as seriously for callings unless mm -hmm. they become like legacy must who have been around from the beginning. Um, and those people end up not going to church because they don't feel like they are white enough to go, if that makes sense. Mm. So a lot of subtle um, clothing, definitely, like men have to show up in white shirts and ties. Women are, it's pretty common to see women wearing the traditional, you know, beautifully embroidered things, but yeah. Very interesting. I'm glad you called, Sarah. Thank you for your perspective. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, and we've gotten we've got two more. Um, so this one is going to be, uh, I think this is Annie. Let me go ahead and bring her on. All right, is this Annie? Yes. Hello. Hi there. Hi there. Go ahead. Hi. I, first of all, I, I want to say I must be a distant cousin of Debbie Joe in the chat because we're talking about um, um, one one of her being related to some of the pierces in there. In the colonies, yeah. I just, yeah. I just, when I started this episode, I had no idea I was going to see familiar family pictures. It was, this has been uh, really amazing because some of my, the history I'd learned, I heard the words third convention and I, I'd heard that Arwell Pierce was the mission president, but I had no context for any of that. And this has been fascinating. Oh, good. Well, I, I'm glad then. So you've known something about this has something to do with your family, but just didn't know the details? Right. And, well, first of all, the whole, um, the ethnic makeup of the members. I had in my mind a picture of a bunch of, Anglos, polygamists moving to Mexico and then being like a little um, bubble there. I had no idea that actual 
Mexicans join the church and that there was a schism. I just, I thought it was basically a bunch of Utahns down there until they moved back. Well, that's what I thought too. That was the image I had in my mind uh, was that it was just a simple colony because it's talked about the colonies, right? But that they lived in isolation right. from the native Mexicans. But I guess when you think about it, they'd be preaching the gospel and trying to baptize people as well and organize the church there among the natives as well as among the, the people from Utah. I'm surprised anybody thought it was a good idea to join a bunch of strange polygamists from up north, but they must have had something good to offer. Right. Well, apparently, yes. I know um, I thought they had something good to offer in 1978. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are my ancestors? Well, it's amazing. Anyway, I guess my, when you don't have all of the information. Else? I just think yeah, that, it's, yeah, it's just good. To, and I have a nice, a, a bigger and, and more complete picture. So, yeah. Yes, thank you. And this is what is happening with me, too. And oh, I'm sorry, Annie. Uh, but I was just saying this is what's happening to me, too. I know a little bit about Mormonism and Mormon history, but there are still pockets and even maybe chasms of information that I don't know. And I was talking with Thomas Murphy about this yesterday and on the phone. And I was talking about how, you know, I'd never, ever heard of a third convention before. I'd never heard about any of this stuff. But having heard about it, it now puts into context what happened with George P. Lee. And from the leader's perspective of uh -huh. the church in the 1970s, when this is and probably early 80s with George P. Lee, the leadership of the church is old enough. Yeah, this is not their first crack at this. This isn't the first time they've experienced this. This is a redo of what happened in Mexico with the Mexican saints in the third convention. And here comes George P. Lee, who's made a general authority. And though he's not Mexican, he's Native American. And he has the same kind of ideas that he's promoting. So of course, they're going, oh boy, here we go again. We need to put an end to this as quickly as possible. Well, thank you for doing this research. Um, thank you. I labored long and hard to put all this together, Annie. I take full credit. <laughs> and I labored as much as RFM did. <laughs> and I'm so glad Bill's gone. So I can take full credit now. Yes. Thanks, thanks Bill. What do you expect? Will do. Right. Thank Great you so job. much. Good night. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Two more callers. Let me go ahead and bring the next one on. Okay, caller, um, this is from a 615 area code. Can you go ahead and say Hello, this is Doug. Hi, Doug. How are you? Fine. How are y'all? Doug Vincent? That's me. Doug Vincent Price. Welcome to the show again, Calling my friend. Again. <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming a weekly caller. No, I'm teasing. But I did want to um, just kind of – you started to – you did mention him, uh, RFM, but I wanted to give a little shout out to Dr. Thomas Murphy, who um, has really been uh, uh, has some interesting articles to read lately. And uh, he's a, a very um, unassuming person, but uh, I think he's brilliant. 
and he's really uh, starting to bring out a lot of history and perspectives from the indigenous uh, peoples who have been largely overlooked in all of these discourses. You know, we kind of have the the colonial uh, point of view that's presented when it comes to uh, church history and, and the unfolding of all these events. And there's a whole different perspective that's completely unknown to almost all of us. Uh, and this is just a, a small example. There are there are plenty of others. So uh, I just wanted to give him a shout out, and I encourage people to maybe follow him on Facebook. He's super approachable and has a lot of great research that he's been doing. And he's listening now, and actually I put it up on the screen. Uh, uh, thanks for the shout out. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he was on. Hello. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't either. Think his username up until now um so I, he's been lurking but yeah good to see you thomas hey murphy. doug i'm going to tell you something about tom murphy that's going to embarrass him are you ready uh oh okay not only is tom murphy an incredible scholar in different fields um and very very intelligent he is also a very very nice man and his wife also is a very, very nice person. They are wonderful. And I just want to thank them for reaching out to me in a very meaningful way when I was down and out. And I'll never forget you for that. Thank you. That's awesome. Good stuff. Thanks for calling in, Doug. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Good night. One more call. And I think this will be it for the night. All right, caller, you are on the line. Hey guys, uh, I really wanted to call him last week and I didn't get a chance. Would y'all be okay if I talked about what my favorite episode was? Yeah. Well, certainly, as long as it was one of mine. Yeah. By the uh, way, who is this? Uh, we'll go with Bobby. We'll Bobby. go with Bobby? Okay, I like going Bobby with Bobby. No, I really like the episode. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked episode 85 and 86. And so 85 is the story of the Tanner's Lighthouse, uh, talking about the book. And of course, the Tanner's are always interesting. But at the end, the last hour, um, Bill was kind of talking about how, I forget who the whoever the chair of the Strengthening Church Members Committee, I think, or his son or some GA son, was uh, sent him a really kind of funny text on uh, Facebook Messenger. And Bill was just making light of it. It was really funny. Um, I really enjoyed that episode. And episode 86, where Bill was on vacation, and you guys, you are feminine Maven, y'all were talking about uh, the newly discovered picture of Joseph Smith. And I just found those two really enjoyable. And I really enjoy all of y'all's work. I just want to thank y'all and get on the air well, and say thank that. You, Bobby. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the fact that you misremembered episode 86. It was not Bill who was on vacation. It uh -oh. was I who was in Utah, who insisted because I was there at a presentation of appreciation for Sandra Tanner, which was actually going on at the same time as the podcast was going right. on, but refusing to be completely oh, shut yeah. out. Did you call into the show? Yeah, yeah. I, I called, called into, into the, the show. show. Absolutely. I was doing on the scene reporting <laughs> with Sandra Tanner. I have something to say about that too. So. <laughs> 
So when I was in the UK, RFM, you made some kind of a side joke when I wasn't on air, which was funny because I did tell you guys that I was leaving the country, but like both of you forgot. <laughs> so both of oh, you yeah. were like, oh, Maven's okay. We don't know where she's <laughs> at. Where's Maven? I was like, we I have told no you idea guys. where Maven is. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But like, I think it was that time or the next week you you made a joke, RFM, that like, I was trapped in your basement. You said something about like, you're going to bring Maven a bucket of fish heads at the end of the episode or something. So when Bill asked me to come on, I said, uh, uh, yeah, I said, I'll co-host with you. But under the, you know, uh, uh, my condition was that I wanted to make a joke that the tables had turned and that I had RFM in my basement. Oh, which he totally blew away like in the first minute or so he he said exactly where you were so i was just thinking like oh bill you ruined it like i had one condition for coming <laughs> on <laughs> but it would have been really awkward if you had made that call <laughs> from my basement so i guess it worked out anyway but yeah well so. i remember there was that time when you were podcasting from someplace and there was all that noise coming from upstairs oh <laughs> i mean that was at home but that was when my brother like installed a um, a treadmill upstairs and they were in the room right above me. And I guess my nephew had, um, it had been going fast. My brother was on it showing him how it worked, but he had stepped to the side, you know, like you do. And then the, the, the band on the treadmill is still running. And my nephew like put his hands on it and it just shh, like just punted him off. And so my brother, like to keep him quiet, because he, you would have heard that coming through probably. He was like, let's see how fast it goes. And then he just like put it up and he just started running as fast as he could. And it was all just to try to distract my nephew from crying. But the thumping was so loud. That's what was heard overhead. And that was when we had Dan Vogel on, I think, with the uh, occult stuff. Um, Did he have no idea that the- you were doing a podcast in the basement? Uh, yeah, I was texting him like, what are you guys doing? Like I had to mute myself. <laughs> and then, so that's when my brother like texted me this whole, the whole story. He's like, I'm sorry. Like, but it, if it wasn't that, like you would have heard a, a toddler like screaming his head off. So uh, yeah, normally like noise doesn't come down like that. But anyway, that was a fun night. <laughs> that was very memorable. <laughs> yeah. And Bobby's still on. Um, oh, no, it looks like Bobby went ahead and... and um, dropped on his own so i think we're good i think we're done with the calls yeah any i think any other final things we want to say Ed, jim bennett's going to be on next week right that is the plan to talk about what is from his perspective by the way from his perspective what is the single greatest problem in the lds church i've seen some guesses already so, really yeah what are some of the guesses um, I think I just, well, the one I remember is um, about the, I guess the leaders, uh, members putting too much stock in the leaders, I think. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I can neither confirm nor deny those guesses, <laughs> but I can say that between cold and warm, that's on the warm side. There you go. That was me ending the, the call-in studio. Bye-bye, um, Bobby. Yeah. Um, well, Bobby had already hung up, so that's why I didn't say goodbye. So I don't want people to I think should have I have said that more like Spike. Bye, bye, Bobby. <laughs> um. All right. Yeah, I think that's it. That's the show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you next week when Bill will not be here at all. It'll just be Maven, me, and Jim Bennett. We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye, bye.